everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice. This episode I got the chance to speak with Ed Tatto, who I met through Alan Wern, who I interviewed previously, and Ed came along to read for us at Sporting Poets a few months back, and we got to chatting and I said, do you want to come on the podcast? And here he is. So we started out, um, surprisingly, with a chat about Ulysses which Ed had brought along with him. And I admitted pretty straight up that I have never read Ulysses. It scares me. (laughs) I don't really know how to approach it. And so we start out with Ed just explaining what the shape of the book is. And then he goes into a reading from it. And I was pretty blown away to hear some of Ulysses for the first time. And from there, we have a pretty broad ranging chat. We talk about the benefits of reading aloud and memorization. And we also talk quite a bit about the the uselessness, I guess, of categories in poetry. Ed reads a lot from poets that he has met living all across the world, and particularly from a group of poets that he knows from Kansas. And this is fantastic for me to hear because these are poets I would never come into contact with otherwise. So it's it's really great to have that opportunity. And uh, I will link to all their books in the show notes. And right at the end, there's a bonus track. There was one last poem that Ed remembered after we stopped recording. And so we popped that one in there as well. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Ed Tatto. It's, it's basically... It's, there's there's three main characters. There's Stephen, Dedalus, Leopold Bloom, and Molly Bloom. Mm-hmm. So Leopold and Molly are married, yeah. and they had they have one daughter, and they had a son who died, and uh, since the son died, they have not had sex. So when you it, it, early on in the book, everyone thought that Molly, of course, people thought Molly was a problem, and that Bloom was uh, Molly's going to have an affair this day. So people, Molly had this reputation as, oh, she's, um, oh, I don't know, she's, she's withholding it from Bloom, and she's a bad, not, you know, the bad wife, and poor Bloom, you know, he just wants to have a loving relationship. And then, you know, the more close reading of the book has turned it around, and Bloom is unable to have relations with his wife since his son dies and, and part of that is he's worried about having another son and part of it he's just um, unready to make this reestablish that emotional connection of yeah, closeness um, but it's him who's doing it um, and Molly is upset by that um, and then so Bloom in, the, in his day of wandering runs across Stephen Dedalus who is uh, the young man who wants to become a writer. Um, and Bloom kind of takes a fatherly... He runs into him several times throughout the day. And he takes sort of a fatherly uh, manner towards him, runs into him the, the last time when Bloom, when Daedalus is really drunk, brings him home. Daedalus spends the night there, uh, and Bloom goes to bed. Molly has her famous soliloquy, and that's the end of the book. So it's it's not... A whole lot happening. It's the it's the individual things that play on relationships. Again, like poems, they're individual moments of intensity, 
about people's relationship with each other, uh, and and you can you can also read it um, as a a statement about Ireland and England and all sorts of things. But for me, the the most important thing of the book is the personal relations, mm -hmm. um, just because that's my my interest in poetry anyway. So. Um, you know the whole thing about the stuff with Ulysses and and its uh, structure and that. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting uh, if people are really familiar with it and that's their thing. Um, it's not all that necessary. Um, but the one thing that fits is that Bloom has been irresponsible in the same way that Odysseus has been irresponsible. They've uh, shunned their family responsibilities. Um, to maintain their own sense of self, which is not, you know, an, an unusual thing. We all that, that's the whole thing: balance between self and relationship. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were making it seem so much more approachable. I want to go and grab the coffee, the coffee that has been sitting on our <laughs> shelf for fifteen years, and and actually open it. Well, to me, that's it's when I stop when I put aside all the other stuff. Um, you know, and a lot of that's Joyce's fault for one writing the book this way, but then making a big deal about all the secrets in the book. So you know, the book has if you read the annotations of the book, which I don't do, um, but you can. There, so much of the book is just stolen from other things, right. and it's it's constant. It's it's every page, every paragraph has. Things that are either allusions to something else or just direct lines from somewhere else, and so you, if you want to read it that way, you can if that's your thing. But mm. to me, that's I don't know. That's a that's a research project and yeah, a, book. a bit of an academic way to approach yeah. it. It sounds a lot like reading the wasteland. Yeah, well. you can yeah. spend an awful lot of time figuring out where all these allusions come from or you can just read it for the music of it yeah yeah, yeah. and the music and the music that's the music of ulysses is really important it, it is it is I've, I've done the all day reading thing twice and it's meant to be read out loud it has uh the writing is beautiful that way uh, and that's why as a poet that's why i like it too because it, it is it's poetry mm. um i know that people might not agree but it is its poem. So this thing that I want to read to you is, um, well, one other thing. The each each after the first three chapters or first four, I think uh, Joyce gets a little bored writing the book. So that's when he starts to go into this this weirdness where each chapter has its own style of narration. Uh, so there's there's. Um, there's the famous one with Gertie McDowell, and uh, that's the girl that Bloom meets on the beach, and it's written um, as a in the language of a woman's daily of the time, sort of a highly melodramatic, over-romanticized um, narrative that you would find in uh, in a magazine of that era of mm -hmm. 1904 mm -hmm. uh there's the uh the chapter where bloom goes to visit a woman in the hospital who's giving birth and uh joyce writes the entire chapter starting with 
uh, a riff on ancient English, old English, and old Norse, and then ends up with contemporary 19th century uh, prose of advertising. It hits everything in between Matthew Arnold, uh, Milton, Shakespeare, Dryden, Pope, and he, he riffs on all these guys throughout the chapter, which it makes it kind of, again, if, you, if you're trying to read it for meaning, it makes it difficult. But when you read that chapter out loud and say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to hear this, it sounds it sounds really good. So the, the chapter that I want to read from is the one that's written as a catechism. So there's a question and an answer. Okay. Um, and Stephen and Bloom are sitting in Bloom's house. Uh, and the, the, only, the only interaction we get is through this narrator asks a question, narrator answers the question. So I just had to find my uh, find my page here. So in this one, I've read um, I've read it at poetry readings. I like to go to poetry readings where they encourage you to to read other people's work before your own. Um, and I've read this several times at different readings. And it always it always gets a good response, okay. even though people will say, "What was that?" Yeah. <laughs> what did that mean? Yeah, because they like me. Uh, they're, they're too scared to read this. They'll, they like it. Uh, so, I'll just start. What in water did Bloom, water lover, drawer of water, water carrier, returning to the range, admire? Its universality, its democratic equality and constancy to its nature in seeking its own level its vastness in the ocean of Mercator's projection, its unplumbed profundity in the sundom trench of the Pacific exceeding 8,000 fathoms, the restlessness of its waves and surface particles visiting in turn all points of its seaboard, the independence of its units, the variability of states of sea, its hydrostatic quiescence in calm, its hydrokinetic turgidity in neap and spring tides its subsidence after devastation, its sterility in the circumpolar ice caps, Arctic and Antarctic, its climactic and commercial significance, its preponderance of three to one over the dry land of the globe, its indisputable hegemony extending in square leagues over all the region below the sub-equatorial tropic of Capricorn the multi-secular stability of its primeval basin, its lutifulvous bed, its capacity to dissolve and hold in solution all soluble substances, including millions of tons of the most precious metals, its slow erosions of peninsulas and downward-trending promontories, its alluvial deposits, its weight and volume and density, its imperturbability in lagoons and highland tarns, its gradations of color in the torrid and temperate and frigid zones, its vehicular ramifications in continental lake-contained streams and confluent ocean-flowing rivers with their tributaries and transoceanic currents. Gulf Stream, North and South Equatorial Courses, its violence in sea quakes, water spouts, artesian wells, eruptions, torrents, eddies, freshets, spates, ground swells, watersheds, water partings, geysers, cataracts, whirlpools, maelstroms, inundations, deluges, cloudbursts, its vast circumterrestrial a horizontal curve, its secrecy in springs and latent humidity revealed by rhabdomantic or hygrometric instruments and exemplified by the hole in the wall at Ashtown Gate. 
saturation of air, distillation of dew, the simplicity of its composition, two constituent parts of hydrogen with one constituent part of oxygen, its healing virtues, its buoyancy in the waters of the Dead Sea, its preserving penetrativeness in runnels, gullies, inadequate dams, leaks on shipboard, its properties for cleansing, quenching thirst and fire, nourishing vegetation, its infallibility as paradigm and paragon, its metamorphoses as vapor, mist, cloud, rain, sleet, snow, hail, its strength in rigid hydrants, its variety of forms and lofts and bays and gulfs and bites and guts and lagoons and atolls and archipelagos and sounds and fjords and minches and tidal estuaries and arms of sea, its solidity in glaciers, icebergs, ice flows, its docility in working hydraulic mill wheels, turbines, dynamos, electric power stations, bleach works, tanneries, scutch mills, its utility in canals, rivers, if navigable, floating and graving docks, its potentiality derivable from harnessed tides or watercourses falling from level to level, its submarine fauna and flora, anacoustic, photophobe, numerically, if not literally, the inhabitants of the globe, its ubiquity in constituting 90% of the human body, the noxiousness of its effluvia and lacustrine marshes, pestilential fens, faded flower waters, stagnant pools in the waning moon. Amazing. Wow, that, so that, yeah, that's the first bit of Ulysses I've ever heard. It's amazing. Um, so, I mean, the, the whole book's not like that, but the, the whole book, I mean, that's, that's just the kind of writing I, 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 it's, it's, to me, it's smart, it sounds good, it's, it's not saying, it's just giving you a bunch, it's a list, mm. but it's a list like a Whitman list, it just, it, at the end of the day, it somehow is a beautiful poem because of what the everything the list has in it and where it goes and where it ends and where it starts. Do you know anything about the writing of the book? Do you know if he did lots of drafts? Or oh yeah. 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 Yeah, I know he was a a revisor, mm -hmm. uh, and a revisor and a revisor. It took seven years to write the book. Um and I know I'll, I'll assume I know that when he when he I have never finished Finnegan's Wake, but when he when he was writing Finnegan's Wake is when he was losing his sight, so he would do his edits by having someone read to him so that he could he could wow. hear how it sounded instead of having to kind of read it himself. And I'm going to assume that he he read this out loud. Um, he, he was a, he was he was supposed to be a really good singer too. Um, so I, I just can't imagine that he wrote only in his head. Uh, I, I mean, just because for myself, I know that when I, when I write, I think it sounds one way, and then as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, that's not what I heard. Exactly. Yeah, it's such a fantastic way to check that you're doing what you thought you were doing. Yeah. 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 Um, I've always wanted to ask somebody from who's originally from the U.S. this question. Because you mentioned Whitman. <laughs> How do you feel about Whitman? How do you think about him? Uh, you know, 
different than I did 10 or 15 years ago, I suppose, right. um, 20 years ago. I, when, you, when, you, when you get Whitman as um, a student in uh, secondary school, he's this... Uh, he's this sort of thing for a past of America that was and isn't anymore. Um, and so you get the poems that are, and you, because also you're young, you get poems that are that are far more literal and far more oriented towards this uh, American thing. Um, and not the not the Whitman's not an American, but he's an he's um. He's an American, as in America is America because I am I, because I am who I am, and I make up. America is me, mm -hmm. and America is that person who is me, and America is that person who is me, and I am all these things. And you don't get that when you're studying it. You just get America is this. Uh, it's a much more static picture, and it's a much more uh, constrained, confined thing, and it's not very interesting, and it's. So you're kind of looking at Whitman's America, like as a student, as a young student, you're being presented with this. This is what America was. Yeah, that's how yeah. I. That's how I was. Yeah, it was bound by time and a place, mm. and technology. Yeah. Um, and it just, it was a, it was more of a, a history social studies lesson. Um, you know, it just wasn't very interesting. And the poetry, because it, it the poetry. Yeah, I like it. I still don't know a lot about poetry, but I knew nothing when I was a teenager. So you got these long lines that, you know, don't seem to have any meter to them and don't rhyme. And you're like, what is this? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not that poetry needs to rhyme, but it, that's what you get as a student. You get all this other stuff, and then suddenly you get Whitman. Yeah, and, and it's, I, I did. Like he's breaking all the rules. Yeah, it's. If someone had explained that to me, maybe that would have been understood. But right. it just—it was more like, "Wow, well, why can't this guy write a poem?" And I mean, you know, I've had people say that to me. Um, someone said that to me just recently. I was talking about Whitman. I forget who it was. Um, he can. He just writes in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and I never—I never realized what it was till um, till I was in graduate school, which was I graduated in two thousand eleven. Um, it's the it's these biblical lines. They're these lines right out of the King James mm. uh, version of the Bible, written the same way, where they're um, multi-clausal dependent sentences that go on and on and on. And mm. they do have a, they have a Whitman-esque rhythm to them, and they have a they're not just he's not. I mean, that whole thing I just read of Joyce, that was one sentence. Joyce isn't doing that. He's doing a different thing with a long sentence. And Whitman is doing his own thing, but it's referring back to this biblical thing. And for him, that's the poetry he would have heard orally in church as he was growing up. And it's, a, it's an allusion to that, but it's also sort of an homage to it as sound. And then it's the, the idea of taking that 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 biblical thing of the god above and saying no the god is me the mm -hmm. god is me here and now in this place which is the creation um and it, it it's a it's a it's a 
interesting complex thing that he's doing and so now i'm i'm, I'm much more attuned to whitman and i i enjoy him um and it but it wasn't until i kind of and it's i think that's true with a lot of poems and if you don't really understand what they're trying to do you can't find an entry into them um, that's suitable to your own individual appreciation of a poem mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not saying that you interpret it any way you want but your your grounds for liking a poem I mean to me I want to I want to hear a poem I, I really as soon as I um, as soon as I like a poem I want to read it out loud so I, w- I want that oral uh, presentation to me so if I, if I don't understand how to read it out loud and I'm not um, I'm not good at it takes me a while to pick up on those kind of things and how to figure out the cadence and rhythm even even with metered poetry it's not I'm not I'm not a great reader on the page of poems it takes me a lot of time to do it, it takes me practice um, so until I get it right the poems never write to me, and and so once you hear a poet read too, it, it's interesting. I have, a, I have a friend of mine whose poetry I love, and he, he's a beautiful reading voice, and he has a great reading style. Um, and when I read his poem on the page now, I can hear his voice, but when I read his poems out loud, I just butcher them because I can't get, and I, I'm never happy because it, it, I feel like I've done a disservice because I know what his poem is meant to sound like and I can't get that right mm. so mm. it's frustrating to me so the opposite happens sometimes when I'm reading it on the page I'm sure the poet doesn't mean it to sound that way but I can't figure out through lines and grammar and syntax how to get a sound out of it that's yeah. meant to be and sometimes other people will read it to you and you'll be like oh, yeah, oh, they, yeah they there it, it is up. yeah yeah no I, I feel exactly the same way I feel like a good reading poem can absolutely transform not just that poem itself but your appreciation of that poet's whole work so i've been I, i'm trying to do some book reviews online um one is for uh, a website called western humanities review there yeah i sent them an application they said sure so uh they sent me the book uh and i, and I like the poems but at the same time i'm like come on this is this is a good poem but it could be really good if you just sort of you know read it again <laughs> and so you think that, that that kind of improvement can come through through reading it out loud I think so yeah. I think so you know that just sometimes there's you, you, you read a poem and I know that I think it happens to everyone because I know it happens to me all the time again that you, you, you write something that seems perfectly clear and then you reread it out loud and like I don't I can't doesn't make sense now mm. and I think the out loud thing is sort of how the other person reads your poems and I'm reading these poems and I'm like well no that how does this go together that you've got a they're very narrative which is good for me I like narrative poems um, but they're uh whether they're plot errors or things like that, places where they contradict. Yeah, and I'm all right with I'm all right with contradiction and ambiguity as long as um, I don't need to resolve them, but as long as both 
work. So if there's if there's a if there's a if there's an ambiguous moment, that's for me that's generally a good thing, as long as I don't need to resolve the ambiguity, mm. and as long as uh, if if it could be A or B, as long as A or B kind of both work. But if it could be A, and you read it A, and then you get to the end of the poem, and the poem makes no sense, then for me as a reader, I'm just like, well, why didn't you just make it B? Why did you give me this option of A, and then it get to the end, and it can't be A, because then I feel like you didn't edit your poem properly. Yeah, you know, maybe you were trying to be a bit too tricky and ended up just, yeah, making an unsolvable yeah. problem. Is there, in, in the poems that you brought today, is there an example in there that... Is um, represents that kind of ambiguity that you do enjoy. Yeah, I, I, this is a he's an Australian poet who um, I'd never heard of. I was with Alan at um, Collected Works, and so the way one of the ways I like to get poems is either someone tells me to read this person, and, and depending on who says it, I will. And the other is to sit in the library or a bookstore pull a book off the shelf randomly and give two or three poems and if something excites me in those two or three then I'll read it a little bit more mm. yeah I think that's a great way to yeah. do it you, you need to have a big um, set of options I think it is good to be standing in front of someone else's bookshelf and to just go to whatever intrigues you I tried to do an episode about a year ago now about how to actually get into poetry like from scratch, like from right. zero, if you'd never tried it before. And that's kind of where I ended up. It's just like, go to a collection of books. Like, don't go to your country's anthology of poets and read it from start to finish because you'll feel very stifled and possibly right. quite bored. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So th this poet's name is uh, Louis Armand. He's an Australian living in Prague. Yeah, and I, I hadn't heard of him, but I was researching him ahead of chatting to you, and he's written so many books of poetry. He's written fiction, criticism. He's an artist. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. And I, I don't really know much about him. I, I'm not going to pretend that I do. And I, that's sort of my way of reading poems, too, is like get, get, if the poem works for me, that's okay. So I've got, you know, I've dog-eared a bunch of poems that, that I like. But in the end... he. It's interesting because he uses he uses really concrete imagery and things and happenings, but he puts them together in a in an abstract collagey kind of way. Some of the time, sometimes they're more narrative than others, but there's never a um, there's rarely ever a these things are all gold together to tell you this. Right. So these things go together so that you can think about how they may or may not go together and what happens if you put them next to each other on this sort of collages type of way. Um, and he's a bit of a, you know, he's a sort of a postmodernist person on communication and the, um, what do we want to call it, the troubles with communication so I don't, he's not trying to make a direct he's not trying to give you a point and say this is this is the theme or the moral of uh of what i do mm. so let me find one of my little dog-eared ones that's and i'll read it 
All right, let's read this one. It's called Les Enfants du Paradis. And it has an epigram. Don't wait up for me this evening, for the night will be black and white. And it doesn't say who that's from. The lobster man hanged himself from a window grating near Châtelet-les-Alles, Rue de la Vieille Lanterne, a no longer extant continuation of Rue de la Tourie. In a brown, dreamless district of the night, certain all-contracted obligations had been fulfilled. No trope left unturned, gone to the devil, for he was a peaceful, serious creature and not without hope for the next world. How does such an occasion become a public memory? The privacy of clouds, maps, a path through the woods, seeing words tremble in air like aspic. A window grating, as if to remonstrate with the striving for singularity, perplexing to onlookers. The waterlogged, sodden stuff of the former self, a mouth not wanting to be fed. Closed eye visualizations of space travel, ancient Olympic athletes chamber music, or the literature of minor conversations. For what's a man who can't stand on his own two feet? The rope doesn't hang, the earth pulls. Dreamless as sweat, dust, bile, the unexceptional gauntlet you feared because it was you. Adverting always to the difficulty of repetition, the lackluster reprise, the epilogue playing dead. So I don't know what that means, but I yeah, wow. <laughs> I love I, it. It's a poem. It's, yeah. um, it's the second poem that I know of now that deals that starts at least with the idea of a lobster man. Do you happen to know um, Oppen's poem about lobster men? I don't. I know Oppen. Um, I read a lot of Oppen when I was one. in uh, New Zealand in grad school. Yeah, oh, but yeah. I don't know that that he had a lobster man. I'll, I'm going to assume that he does because I'm pretty certain there's um, there's a there's a poem for Oppen in here, maybe. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. It, yeah, but as you were reading it, I was trying to hold on. I got really attached to the lobster man at the start, and so the whole time you were reading, I was trying to tie all the lines back to the lobster man, but that wasn't working. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> at all. No, and in yeah. the end, you know, where he says, uh, because it was you, I mean, the lobster man's just there because it's the thing that I my reading of the poem after at this moment is it's the part of me that doesn't fit with the rest of the world and therefore must work its way through all these other things mm. um, and is in despair over my not fitting in mm. um, and that, that just fits who I am so that's part of the reason why I like the poem but I, you know it's um his poems and I, I I haven't I I haven't tried to paraphrase them. I haven't tried to I haven't really talked to many people about them. But they're 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 moody to me. And when I read them I, I read them on the tram a lot when I have my music going and it just I, I find myself in a um just in a thoughtful state about life and what life is and mm. you know it's it's never very he's not a very cheery person um but that's fine and you, you don't have to be cheery for all the time of your life you don't always want to be dark um and I, i'm not sure he's dark but um yeah it's a it's kind of what he does and it, it was just something i i 
I, you know, I happened to come across, mm. um, which is one of the reasons why I like doing poems that way. So mm. one one interesting thing that happened to me, I was in Buffalo years and years and years ago. I, I found a poet whose name I, I've now forgotten, uh, and I and I really like this book, and I and I went and I read it again, probably five years later, and then I went to I ended up going to school in Syracuse, uh, and he wasn't at the program I was at, but he was teaching at um, at another school in Syracuse, so I got to see him read once, and it was really enjoyable. You know, I'd never heard of you. I just found your book and I read it because it worked, and now yeah. I got to hear you read. So yeah, you know, that's so great. And he was a really nice guy too. It's not, it's not you know. It's it it's nice. It's good when people, um, people whose work you admire. It's good when they turn out not to be. Um, when, yeah, yeah, know. I strongly agree with that. Not especially that, not that at guy. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, and I don't. I try not to make too much of who the poet is because I know that. You know, we're all pretty flawed. Yeah, you're gonna uh, kick over, you kick over too many rocks. You're gonna find a yeah. spider. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think we should heroize the people who write because they're not any better than the people who don't. Um, and I think sometimes there's a temptation to think that because people have an ability or a message that that makes them something they're not. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I never have heard it put that way, but that's a really great point. I definitely do that. I'm definitely like, you've got a book, so you are clearly in the like important person category. Oh, that means you know someone who publishes <laughs> <Yeah>. books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, exactly. That's Especially like, in, in poetry too, probably. Yeah. Like I have two books and they're both published by people I know. So mm-hmm. without me knowing people who want to publish books I wouldn't have a book published and so when people say you have a book I'm like yeah I do and you know I like my book I don't want to denigrate them but Mm. it's circumstance and randomness and luck a lot of times too I mean that's why we in the US we go to grad school because then you you increase your circle of um, contacts yeah I mean that didn't work out that way for me both my mind came before but one person I met in New Zealand where I was in school, but he wasn't in school. He was a, a local uh, poet in Auckland who uh, was a really good poet. Um, and he just published these small artisan books. Um, Beautiful. And he wanted to do one for me. I said, sure. Yeah, right. So. so I wanted to ask you about the fact that you have moved from a number of different poetic communities in the U.S. because I know you've lived in Alaska, you lived in uh, New Jersey, uh, you mentioned Buffalo. There's a lot of places on that list in the U.S. And then you were in New Zealand, mm-hmm. in Auckland. Now you're here in Melbourne. What is it like moving between those poetic communities? Do you get to a place and think, all right, I've got to go find the the bookshop and, and then find the scene? Or do you just kind of let that happen? Um a little bit of both because uh, I want to go to uh, I want to go to the readings mm. so by going to the readings you you see people who uh, go to readings um, and, you, and you listen to their work and you kind of get to know them that way and when I did that in Kansas there were uh, uh, maybe five of us in a core group that started a writing group together mm. and they 
they were the best writers I've ever been around, um, and they were the best readers that I've ever been around. That's great. Um, and I'm going to exempt myself from that <laughs> bit of it too. Um, they just were. They were these crazy poetry people, um, and they loved poems, and they. You know, so it, it was it was fantastic for me, and they were really good readers too. So when when you, when you went to the the when I would give them a poem, I know people bag workshopping, which is fine. I like it, um, and it helps me. So you give someone who's a careful reader your poem, and then they they take some time with it, and they give you this stuff back, and you're like, wow, okay, yeah. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I didn't understand my poem could be read that way. And then um, you know maybe I'll change stuff. Maybe I won't. But the the care and attention makes you want to um, be responsible to what what the what the poem is, and not what you. That's really where I kind of learned best to kind of start letting my intentions go was by letting other people who were keen explain what the poem was instead of what I wanted it to be. Yeah, completely. That's such a valuable part of workshopping. I'm the same. I get so much out of it. And when you do have three or four people give you feedback on a poem, even if you have that realization that it's saying something you totally didn't intend, there's something about that attention that makes it just that much more precious. Yeah. It's very hard to walk away from a poem that's been workshopped, I think. Yeah, and one um, of, maybe that's what you should be saying, is one of my professors would say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. If, if five people are telling you it says this, or it wants to say this, maybe that's something you really want to say and haven't figured out how to say it. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, so Kansas was great. I, it's it's sort of different everywhere, but it's sort of the same everywhere. And the big thing is that people like poetry, um, like being the most important word. They, you know, but you, I'm sure you've been to a reading where you've seen somebody sitting writing their poem and yeah. not listening. Yeah. But that's the sort of the exception rather than the rule and most of the places I've been people are listening and I've, I've said that about your reading I, you know I get excited when people listen both to my poems and other people's poems because it just makes for a better interaction mm. um, with this this word um, and people are better listeners that means it's quiet mm. um, I used to like to read in bars but now I, I like a venue that's quieter. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to be said for it. Um, that's really interesting that you say it's sort of the same everywhere. I think I am quite attached to the idea that every single place's poetry scene has, um, like, is really distinct. And, like, those distinctions are really important. And, like, you... You're, if you're in New York, you get to do these New York things with these New York people, and those are the things you can't do right. in Melbourne or Sydney or Canberra or whatever. But um, yeah, I think that's probably true too. Like you, in, in every place, you're just going to be interacting with people who like poetry, and you'll meet different people and you'll hear different poems. But it's the same practice. And it could be that I, I'm self-selecting the thing I like. Because well, in, yes, in a place maybe. like like Melbourne and New York, you you can't you can't go to them all. So you gotta you gotta figure out which one do you want to go to, mm. 
which couple, and then you go. Yeah. So, yeah, St. Mark's in New York is different than uh, the Bowery, which is different than, oh, there was an open reading I used to go to. Um, in uh, It was in the Bowery, but it wasn't in, it wasn't that reading. So yeah, the readings are different, but by the time I'm through, I'm, I'm sort of going to one that fits my schedule and fits my, yeah my taste. So there, mm -hmm. there is that too. Um, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's when I was in, in Utica in Syracuse, uh, basically the two places that I lived, there's one or two readings to go to. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then, and the same people sort of populate them. Um, and I find that, um, you know, if you don't, if people, people write for the page, but if you write for the page, generally you're not a big proponent of reading. I found that weird when I was in graduate school is that very few of my fellow students would go to open readings. Right. It just wasn't a thing. I'm like, well, what are you doing with your poems? And all they, they were writing them. Then that's fair enough. Yeah. I think it's just so valuable to get up and and read them to a group of people though because there's nothing like that feedback that you get from <laughs> a line that doesn't work the silence the, the crickets silence, <laughs> the air yeah. going out of the room it's good for it, it, you know there's sometimes when I when I read I, I don't want to talk about me too much but sometimes when I read and I'm done and I just I just want to go home and I just want to have a shower. Yeah. Because <laughs> Forget I get that it ever happened. <laughs> yeah, because I feel sometimes it's it's oh, how to how to put it. There's this thing like you you get a little too caught up in yourself up there on stage and this idea of what you're doing and who you are and just like, you know, you're just another guy reading a poem. Keep that in perspective. And you know what when when nobody says a word when you're done and they can't tell you finished a poem and I can't tell you done with your set. And you're like, yeah, okay. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just, that just a, I'm just a guy up here. <laughs> so There's always going to be readings like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there are. So that, that's what the, the people who do stand-up comedy, oh, man. I don't know how you can do it. Yeah, um, yeah I don't want to go on a huge stand-up, <laughs> but we can talk about that for hours, too. Um are there in in the poems that you brought? Are there um, uh, others other examples of ones that you think you read and you thought, oh, this one I have to read out loud even to myself. Yeah, there there's um well this my my get my books in order. My my go to poet uh, currently is a. Uh, it's this book, it's called Devotions by Bruce Smith, and he was a professor of mine at Syracuse, and he, he writes lyrical poetry. Um, and he's, um, he's a music person. So he, he's one of those people that has been, he grew up, uh, he was born in 45, I think. So he, he rock and roll was just starting in, in Motown and all that, and it's always been his thing and his, his his music is so, I mean his poetry is so musical um, that yeah it, it it wants reading out loud. Um, right. It's it's meant to be done that way. And this this book is it 
It's called Devotions, and every poem is called Devotion, and then it has a second part of the title. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Which one do I want to read? I'll read this one. I read this one. Um, I had a reading at the Dan, and I read this one uh, uh, to my this part of my, my set. It's called Devotion Smoke. There's a game on, but there's always a game on, and a tire fire in the distance squalling smoke in your direction, and threshold limit values of cadmium and chromium, like a mannerist painting done in flames and volatile oils, plus benzene and coal tar and the oxides of our recent being on Earth. The tennis is sensational, isn't it? The ground strokes, the aces, the donk donk, like a translation of grunts to French. Thus the American is left with, the, with love after a cross-court topspin, difficult to return, difficult to even reach. The sky is orange, like a level of threat, and gray like another country, one we came from, or one we set on fire. Forty love, we like a good game with perspiring. Our Secretary of State likes anything, she says, with a score behind it. And behind that, the perfumes of the superfluous and the shared vapors of our ruin. And behind that, a sparrow. And behind that, the work men do at the rehab. At the rehab because of the work men do. The nerve ends keep forming a man composed of nerve ends. The smoke smells like a French confection burnt in the kitchen of the prison. The play continues after rain. The sky is a black rose. The sensational moments scored for us. The sky scored for us into the adored and uncared for and the struggle that governs as someone falls and someone sweats and the fire governs. Oh, Love that. Smith. Yeah, he's he's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I had that feeling. He's like, yeah, this he's is, pretty good. <laughs> it is. I, I was, I was last that I was watching... Um, an interview with Bruce Beresford, and uh, I, I forget what the question was. It was on one-on-one, -on -one, but he said, oh, you know, sometimes I just go to movies and I can't believe how good the movie is. And I said to myself, wow, I could never do that. And he's totally impressed by it. And that woman said, wow, you really think that? And I, I don't know when I... I'm not gonna I'm, again. I compare myself to Bruce Beresford, but I, I read some poems by people. And I'm just like, yeah, that is so good. How did you do that? Where did that come from? I, you know, I couldn't even. And that's what makes it. It's that that. That's why you keep writing, but that's why I keep reading. Is the, the things people can do with, words. Completely. Um, Completely. Sound, ideas, images, pictures. It's mm. just. It's nuts. Um, and it's kind of, you know, I like, I like poetry because it's just the words doing it. Mm. Um, you know, I don't mind when people do poetry and music together, poetry and pictures together. That's good too. And it's just as good, but there's just something about people. All I got is my little words and you know, you're going to be stunned by these words. Yeah. To me, it, it, I feel like the closest, um, art form would be sculpting something from a piece of marble or something it's like all i've got is you know my, my tools and i've got this one piece of material words or 
rock or whatever, mm. and I'm going to make something out of that. And yeah, that that is why the best poems impress me so much as well. Because I'm like, how did you make me feel and think all those things just from like yeah on a piece of paper? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? They're not. Yeah. It's like the, with the with sculpture. When 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 you're done with a sculpture, it doesn't look like rock. It mm. looks soft, mm. like you want to. You feel like if you touch it, it's just going to have this. Mm, yeah feel to it but it, it, it is it is just rock yeah and that's the thing these are just marks on the page but they're not anymore someone mm. made them into a completely different uh medium mm. than they are yeah yeah there's something so deeply comforting about that yeah to me are you um reading much of the poetry that's being written in the u.s right now like in the last uh, year specifically? No, the most current book I have is, uh, other than the ones I bought here, is um, this book of Bruce's was written in what, 2007, 2009. So that'd be the most current one I have. Right, yeah, okay. I only ask because, you know, I, I'm keen to kind of understand like how uh, poetry is shifting now you know under the trump administration like what's what's happening to it and to get like thoughts from oh god i hope they're just the ignoring US. him yeah <laughs> he gets enough attention yeah <laughs> let yeah. us let us keep poetry to ourselves and not be forced to write about yeah maybe i want to go off real quick here not on poetry on him one of the things i really dislike about the way he's covered is he's a he's a five-year-old having a tantrum i have a two-year-old when she has a tantrum i let her have her tantrum and i don't i don't try to comfort her uh and i don't try to stop her i just let her do her thing and i, I you know it, most of the time um but trump has his little tantrums and everybody has to be part of it which just makes it worse because then he's having more tantrums just like so I don't want him in my my poetry because he's he's inescapable everywhere else and he's not very interesting. He's important, but he's certainly not interesting to me. Um, so he would be he might be a good topic as a okay. I have a, I have a poem about a, a a man who you find out at the end of the poem has uh, abused his wife and child, um, and I I'm not trying to make him into a good person i'm trying to say with the poem how do we how do we where do we start with someone like that to try to understand them at the human level mm -hmm. so you know you a really good artist might be able to take trump and make him a good tragic isn't right but a good a good creature to say what is this thing and how how is he human and then once he's human what do we do with his humanity given all his other stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's certainly not happening happening in in media. So I, I'm I don't want to be outraged. The the internet to me is an outrage machine and I, I don't I don't want that and I don't want to be outraged by my poetry. I wanna be Yeah. I wanna think. Yeah, I'm just I don't really go to poetry to feel um, validated in my outrage. <laughs> I right. think a lot of people do, um, and I think that's totally fine. But yeah, that's not what its its function is to me. It's more about 
um, making sense of senselessness. Yeah. Putting a shape around a feeling that, like, like that poem that you just read, um, you know, I'd have to, like, look at it very closely to understand what, what it was about. But the sense I got from it was um, uh, that feeling that you have when you know that awful things are happening in the world and it seemed like it had a fairly direct political tie as well but kind of the the inevitability and kind of the, just the like the daily action that just keeps happening like the tennis game keeps coming yeah, back in yeah. and out um and so that's useful to me when i hear that because i i feel that recognition like somebody else has sort of felt that like well Everything's pretty bad, but I still have to go to work. <laughs> and and he, he he's he he blames this thing and he, he bags this thing we call America, but he doesn't he doesn't let you off the hook by saying it's America. He makes you you meaning me, because I'm an American, he makes you culpable if you are an American. There's no there's no there's no critique of America that doesn't include a critique of yourself who live there and are part of it um, mm-hmm. which which it makes if you're going to do politics in a poem um, that makes it interesting I'm, I'm I can't step aside and criticize this thing that I've spent my whole life being even if I'm even if I'm a um, a voice of the minority against what's happening I'm still I'm still sucked into it and part of it um, Maybe not as much as others, but still, where's my, what do I do about this? Where mm-hmm. am I because mm-hmm. of this? And I think that he, you know, is a, <clears throat> as a, he'd be the first to say, as a baby boomer, um, privileged white male of an especially privileged white male time in an especially privileged society, he is always trying to come to grips with what what do I do with this thing I have? I know I, I, I admit that I have it, but that's not enough. Mm. Um, what do I do with it? How do I, how do I, how do I come to terms with it as, a, as, as, a, as myself, but then how do I, how do I use it in furtherance of, of making this place something better? Um, and, and for him, I'm not sure better is necessarily, it includes political action, but it's also, it's individual things. It's, it's understand, it's, you know, I, I guess, you know, we all have, whoever we are and whatever we think, we all have to come to terms with ourselves at some point. Um, and, and how to do that, not what that means, but how maybe to start to think that way I think you could say is part of what he does mm. Mm. Um, can I read another poem from the please book? yeah uh, it's so great to be introduced to someone it is when it's you, a well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would never ever come across this poet otherwise this is um, this is why I like these people in Kansas because they were every week we'd start our, our workshop with reading a poem of someone and I'm just like oh who's that oh who's that oh who's that so I have yeah. I have someone I was introduced to there that I, I his poems are really long but they're, they're crazy beautiful um, what do I want to read if I can find the brutal I'll read this one so I, I went to school in Syracuse and then I lived in Utica 
Utica is um, it's 90 minutes from Syracuse. Syracuse is three and a half hours from New York, or Utica is three and a half hours from New York City. 67% uh, of school-aged children in Utica live in poverty. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a crazy poor place, and it's, uh, Syracuse used to be not as bad, but Syracuse is sort of on the way up, and Utica is, is still floundering. Um, the devotion bus, bus to Utica. Waiting on a bench like the one outside the third grade classroom where you were sent for singing badly, or like the disinfected slab at the clinic waiting for blood to be drawn. Maybe we'll have experience, you tell me, or if not experience, time with freezing rain and Dickinson's discs of snow. A white weight as in an unwritten poem that dreams the crimes of kindness done to us. We're here for the distance. Beside us, a man recovered from experience who has mastered pain and deadpan as he was mastered by his disease. Does the bus stop in Albany? Another waiting one of us is boy with an empty sleeve and a sulky girl born in Rome, schooled in Geneva. All Europe went into her making, all experience teased from her, blood drawn from her by the sky. Is this the bus to Troy? A bent over white man leaks from plastic bags of tropical fish, neons and guppies, clown and tiger barbs. When he drank, he opened his mouth, sometimes to water, sometimes to air, sometimes to God, his mind leaking silver or purple like an oil spilled in the canal. We make our meek adjustments because the bottom of the sea is cruel, he writes on the bus stop wall, those words from Hart Crane in pencil. He works his imaginary glove, waiting for the inning to end, find a vein and draw experience. Smoking is how the bus is provoked. I hope, I hope, stop it already with the hopes. An upstate Juliet waits. She is partly sunny. Does the bus stop in Verona? Does it stop for a 15-minute break from experience? We'll go through cities of one feeling, towns thin as angelfish, deadpan villages. Cut open Dickinson and you'll find the blues, you tell me. Kiss Dickinson and you'll find distance. Does the, dust, does the bus stop at Wellbutrin? I can't draw, but you can. If the bus goes through Mexico, are we Mexicans? You draw a sketch of a Cadillac convertible top-down. It's not all representational. Elves, Elvis drives into the horizon. All the cut, all the cut open and unkissed gather around. You've drawn yourself in the back seat, smiling, quiet so as not to annoy Mr. Presley. Cut open Elvis and you'll find a small town boy singing badly for Michael Burkhardt. Um, and Michael Burkhardt's another poet uh, who uh, teaches at Syracuse. And Michael Bur Burkhardt is the kind of poet who knows every poet who ever seems to have come through the U.S. Um, and he's a I didn't bring any of his books with me. Um, Mike's a really interesting person. He He's just a really thoughtful, kind, um, off-the-wall, 
doesn't think the way you or I think mm -hmm. uh, kind of person. Um, and all the places in here, Rome, Geneva, Troy, Verona, those are actually all places in and around Syracuse and Utica. Really? Yeah, there's uh, oh. it was it was settled by a lot of Italians, so there's all these, uh, and even Mexico is a place. Um, there's a Warsaw, there's a Russia, mm. there's all these European names for all these tiny, tiny little towns in uh, upstate New York. Wow. Fascinating. It's such a fascinating part of the world. It's yeah. It's very beautiful too. It is, yeah. Um, when I was listening to that, I was reminded a little bit of um, a poem by Ron Silliman called Albany. Um, I don't know if uh, Bruce Smith would be at all happy with a Silliman comparison. He might be like, "What? <laughs> I'm not a language poet. Get away!" I, I, but, Bruce, yeah. Bruce. Now Bruce doesn't. Um, He's not worried about categories. No, he's okay. not. He he's 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 not at all. He's another very generous. Um, if, if Bruce reads a poem, Bruce, Bruce and Michael are the same way. If they read a poem, they're they're gonna find the good thing in the poem, mm -hmm. and not worry about. Yeah, the other that. stuff will take care of itself. It's, yeah. yeah, other people will write papers and yeah. reviews and stuff and sort all of that. Yeah, yeah, you know, and Bruce is not going to consider himself a language poet, but he's not going to, he doesn't have a, a side to, a mm. bone to pick in any of this stuff. Yeah. So, I wish I was like that. It's hard to be that way. It is because I think, um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just thinking about all these categories that I have set up in my mind um, in opposition to one another, like, you know, page and stage, um, experimental, lyric, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And just how useless all that is. Like, it's just so unhelpful. Yeah, it doesn't get yeah, you anywhere. No. It doesn't achieve anything. It just makes you more afraid to write things um, because you're just thinking about how they'll be received, I guess, and what, how they'll be categorized. I agree because you, you sometimes you feel like there are things that people are using as a club mm. to bash you over your head with, um, or a club to keep you out of. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it, not everybody, and it, it doesn't matter whether it's the narrative people who write narratively or people who write. I sort of reject the idea of experimental because I think every poem was an experiment. But yeah, I'm starting to think that recently too. I'm like, hang on, yeah. what is experimental? But see, that <laughs> it's it's hard, to, and I don't know that I. I've seen journals that ask for experimental poetry, but I'm not sure that I've ever met a poet who says, who refers to themselves that way. But I feel like a word like that, that's really a judgmental word. Um, it's like saying you're in the avant-garde, which is the implication being that if you're not doing that, you're sort of doing the same old thing that everyone else is. You're not being original because you're just doing the stuff that's already been done. Um, so I, can, I, I don't like that. Um, and at the same time, I, I know that I have my own issues to deal with when it comes to labeling poetry um, mm. and being more open to things. Uh, it, it can be hard. I, you know, I, I was in New Zealand and I had a woman, she was talking, she ran the program, she was the convener of the program. She was, she was an American. And she just, at one point, she just said, narrative is stupid. And I'm, I'm writing these narrative poems, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I get you don't like it, but that's not 
helpful. How, in what way? Was there any kind of backup to that statement? Or was it just... Well, could there be? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like floored by that. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, you know, whatever. I. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's super interesting. Yeah, that reminds me of a, a friend of mine who we were workshopping and I had a poem written in second person. And she said, oh, it's so great that you wrote this because... One of my poetry teachers told me you can never write a poem in a second in the second person ever. Like, really? Wow. Um, yeah. What would that be? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It's fun. Sometimes I write a poem in the second person and I read it much, much later, and I can't remember if I'm that second person is me or someone else, mm, mm. which is sometimes okay and sometimes not. But yeah. Uh, yeah, the the rules. I like. I'm a big believer in understanding fundamentals and knowing what they are. That doesn't, you know, you don't have to write in rhyme. You don't have to write in meter. Um, and I don't, you know, I I don't know if Bruce's poems scan, but they certainly have music. I mm. want, you know, I want music as opposed to meter, but. You, Bruce's understanding of both music as music, music, music of poetry and meter is is pretty it's pretty intense. So that's how you know without knowing those things, your ability to get to words that become music is much more difficult. Mm. I mean, I I don't know. I've I've never met anyone who sits down and writes a great poem out of the blue you know without having spent some time working at things and maybe working at the poem mm. um, so I, yeah I believe in fundamentally knowing your what your your art is about and I, I like poetry that reflects that mm. um, you mentioned before that there are certain um, maybe certain kinds of poetry that you are working on being more open to what are some examples of that? Uh, I'll, I'll take this the Louis Armand thing because he he definitely some of his poems are their communications about the inability to communicate, and I find that a really frustrating topic. But because I like the way he's doing it, it makes me more open to it as an idea. Mm -hmm. um, a a poem that is written in language that says I want to say this but I can't say this because language doesn't allow me to say these things just I, I shut down immediately and so anything that kind of gets near that as a topic or a, an idea makes me nervous mm. um, defensive uneasy I'm not sure what the word is but I start to I start to push push away against it um, things of poetry that's um, poetry that has too many big words in it <laughs> yeah that'll shut me down pretty quickly as well and I mean that's why I've never read Ulysses <laughs> <laughs> There's so many words you can skip the big ones and you right. don't have to worry about That's it. That's a good point. But yeah, I, I really I was saying to someone the other day, um, there's a couple of younger friends of mine 
who <laughs> seem to think that I can teach them how to write poetry. Right, <laughs> like, right. I really can't do that for you. But what I can say is, um, you know, it's a good poem if you're in it somewhere, if you, the writer, are inside it. Mm. And it's probably not going to age very well if you've done it purely for um, the impression it's going to make. Like, because it's going to, it's, it sounds fancy and you think right. people might be impressed by your vocabulary. Um, and yeah, if I ever feel like a poet is writing a poem just to sound fancy, I'll basically just walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Clever. I am not big on the clever poem. No. You know, that, I, look, I, I don't need to know how smart you are. I'm not impressed by smart. I, no, I am impressed by smart people, but I'm not impressed by a poem that wants to show me how smart the poet is. Yeah, well, the thing is, we don't have anything else to work with in that instance. Like, if you're a really smart person, you might also be a really nice person, and you might have super interesting things to say, and we can have a conversation. But if it's just your poem, it's kind of like your resume. It's like, look how great I am. If you were that smart, you would know that you could write a poem about something else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I have those kind of poems. Um, I I have a problem with... philosophic poems just because I don't have any philosophy background. Yeah, I mean, if you've got, like, say, a scientific background, maybe um, scientific poems would speak to you in a really direct way. Yeah. If you put Heidegger in a poem, I don't know what Heidegger... I don't... I know Heidegger's a philosopher. That's all I know. If you say Hegel, I don't know what Hegel or Kierkegaard... So... Or if you're alluding, even more so, if you're alluding to those kind of ideas... They're, they're so beyond me as a reader that I, I I need the poem to be accessible for me. I need the poem to be accessible in, a, in, a, in another in, a, in an, an additional way. Um, so if it's not, then I, I kind of I just don't know what to do with it and I I, I just generally push it away again. Mm. Um, I mean for me, I used to have, I used to keep a list of books I wanted to read. And that just kept getting bigger. Uh, So it's pointless at this point um, to know what I'm not going to read. So there's so many things, there's so many good things I know I would like to read that I'm, it's kind of like me in the library or the bookstore. If, If you're not hitting on me, hitting to me I'm, I'm just going to put you down it's it's I'm judging you as a poem I don't want to read not necessarily a bad poem yeah um, on your own terms and I, yeah, and I may find it I may find I want to read it at a different point in my life mm. but I just I don't have enough time to read something just because someone wrote it who's supposed to be good um, it has to speak to me at this point. Um, yeah, there's too many books. Even within Australia, there there's too many books to keep up with. No, there's too many people writing. But yeah. that sounds wrong. There's too many <laughs> people writing for any one person to follow it all. Right, right, right. Yeah. And to read it all. So yeah. It's great that there are so many people yeah. writing. Very exciting, and it lifts everybody's game. But you've got to accept that you're not going to read everything. No, and, and we could take, like this, This okay, again, I'll go back to Bruce Smith, who, uh, he was nominated for a National Book Award in the U.S. I don't think he won. Um, but if we think about that, that's pretty up there level to be in, let's say. But if you look over the last 30 years and they nominate five books a year, that's 150 poets, let's say, 
half of them got nominated twice. That's 100 poets who are supposedly at the apex of their craft. Um, and who can even read the, all those 100 poets and all their works? And that's and just it, the U.S. And that's yeah. just one award in the U.S. Yeah, it's one award in the U.S. And we tend to value contemporary stuff. And we think, oh, you know, the 90s poetry is so dated. <laughs> you know, who's reading, who's reading stuff from the 90s anymore? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know either. I, know, I went back and I, I tried to find Bruce's book from 2005. Uh, and which is songs for two voices, and then he had another one in two thousand, the other lover, and I, you know, I I had trouble finding him. Mm, mm. And when I got him, I'm like, well, these are beautiful books. Yeah. Um, and I never heard of Bruce before. I I looked at Syracuse as a place to go. Right. So, you know, there 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 are thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred Bruces out there who I'm. Not only never going to read, I'm never going to hear of, which is why, you know, I, I try to, I give a book a chance, but I don't feel compelled to finish, and I don't feel compelled to read it more than I, I want to read it. Yeah, that's exactly it. That, that's what I always try to tell people, because I think there is so much obligation around reading poetry, even for poets who get yeah, it, who are yeah. inside of it. We feel very obliged to have read and to be able to. We're awfully insecure. About, yeah, we're super insecure. <laughs> and, but non-poetry readers or people who are like around the edges thinking, I'd like to go into that house, um, I think it's very, very hard because they feel as if they have to uh, somehow like ingest this canon all at once and, and it's just too much. And so I always say, you know, look, just go to whatever you... If you like it, that is great. If you're reading it at all, that's amazing, you know. And tell someone else. Yeah, tell someone else. Yeah. Read a poem to somebody else. Yeah. Oh, um, I'll read your poem from a, a friend of mine in Kansas. Great. Uh, I was in um, <clears throat> in a class in uh, Syracuse, and it was called The Perfect Poem, which is interesting. because that's, really, that's a great name for a class. There really isn't, but there, the, the whole what you did is you brought a poem every week that you thought was a perfect poem. And then we just talked about, you know, talked about the poems that we brought. That's really cool. Yeah, it was. Mary Carr taught the class. Um, what? You got to study with Mary Carr? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's insane. I've never read Mary's um, um, memoirs, but like... I haven't read her memoirs, but her poems have just blown me away. Yeah. Holy crap. Uh, Mary's... Can I swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary doesn't take any shit. Yeah, I bet. Um, so you bring you bring a perfect poem to class for her. You you need to be prepared to explain why it's perfect. Um, Sounds so fun. And she she has her. Yeah. She's she's good. She challenges you. Um, he definitely is not one. You can't. Well, you know, I liked it because it really spoke to me. <laughs> just felt She's nice. going to say, well, what, did it, what spoke to you and how? Mm -hmm. But she won't say it that calmly. <laughs> so <clears throat> this poem is, she says, Timothy. This isn't the day for this, she says. We're having weather with more on the way. She snaps beans over the sink and remembers certain things on the line. A stiff breeze snaps those things, popping like her beans. 
She brings them in a she brings them in a little wet, and another popping the vein in her neck. So now I know, but it took time to learn. Applejack is what she wants, so I pour a little and she goes back to her beans. I sit on a metal chair and lean, whittling nothing into nothing. She says, Frank, what's this for? And I say, nothing, sweet. She has another drink and dries her hands with her eyes out the window. Says, sometimes when I sleep, I dream I'm a bicycle tire in the rain. All treads and spinning, throwing the little beads away. I step behind her and say something soft. Walk her to the guest room and help her out of her apron. She lies on her side and closes her eyes. I say easy and sleep and picture this bed in a field of rye maybe or Timothy. Uh, that's the poet's name is Jason Wesco and the book is called Rough Traces. And you took that one into the perfect poem class? I did. I did. I'm not sure Mary agreed with me. <laughs> well, maybe she didn't agree with anyone. She, she rarely does. <laughs> so, uh, we love you, Mary, if you're listening. We do. We do. We do. And I, I think she she has her opinions. I don't think that's news to her. No, yeah. Um, that's great. What a great idea for a class. Yeah. yeah. Her, other, her other class, I think, was Dead White Men. Um, awesome. So she's she's really good with um, moderns, from mm-hmm. a from what I would consider a traditional American point of view, um, which is uh, a somewhat uh, new critical looking at the poem thing and just reading the poems. Um, she's really good with Stevens. So we read all of Stevens, all of Frost. Uh, I'm sure we read Elliot, and I can't remember what else we read. I don't know if we did Williams or not. I think we did. But it's amazing when you read Frost, mm-hmm. because Frost has a gazillion poems. But then he's got like 13 great poems. And you're like, how does someone have 13 great poems? And they said, well, it's only 13. You think about that. Mm-hmm. Like who, how many poets that you know would you say, that's a really great poem? Not just like, I really like that one, but that's a great poem. I guess it, most, for me, maybe a half a dozen poems for a really, really great writer. If we're talking about contemporary people writing now? Oh, even anybody. Even anybody. Even anybody. Mm. Yeah, I'm, there isn't an immediate list springing to mind, I have uh, to say. It's, just, um, it's amazing how difficult it is it's to write a really, 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 really great poem that just kind of electrifies you. Yeah, I mean, Bruce has got 13 of them. Yeah, yeah, he's such a good writer. I have a book on, on my shelf which is Early Poems of Robert Frost, and mm-hmm. I, I keep it because I hate some of the poems in it so much, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, he was bad too at a certain point. But yeah, yeah I, well, I mean, I adore talk. Frost. I, I love Frost so much, um, but I keep that book there as comfort. But yeah. They're all... all, all all poets write bad poems. I, I have my Anthony Heck. I'm not going to read Anthony Heck because my my favorite poems are just really, really long oh, poems. Okay. So uh, I have this book, The Venetian Vespers by Anthony Heck, which is one of my favorite um, books. And the the title poem is it's like 20 pages long. Huh. 
Um, it's just it's such a great poem. And then there's a there's two other ones that I particularly like. Actually, there's three. The grapes, which is let's see, that's six pages. The short end. That's 12 pages. Um, and then there's one called the Duodena. The Duo. He uses a lot of big words, but he gets away with it. Mm -hmm. The Diodand. And that's that's only three pages long, but it's three long pages. So the those are four poems I love. And I love this book. But then some of the some of the poems in the book are just like, wow. Did you have to put that one in? <laughs> and I mean, who am I to tell Anthony Hecht what to do with this book? But I, I think, you know, when it comes to a book, it's rare to find a book without a couple of clunkers in it, too, which is good if you're a writer. You're like, okay, well, if that person wrote that, then I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm on the right track. Right. I should yeah. keep going. That's a really good point. Yeah. So his, his poems, they just did the... They're the kind of poems that they have great details in them. They have really interesting stories, but they kind of they have these surprises that just mm, like my I, I get a like this feeling in my head. I get all tingly because it's it's like when you're watching a movie and you realize you've totally missed something, and something really horrible is happening, and you have not seen it the whole way, and it just makes the horror that much more uh, frightening at the time you're discovering it. Oh God. Uh, so to write a poem that way, it's yeah. it's pretty good. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, he's, he he has a poem about a. It starts off. Well, let me see. This is the, this is the one called the Diodand which I'm probably not pronouncing well. So he's watching, um, the, the, I shouldn't say he, the narrator is watching um, some women looking at a painting and then he it starts imagining and remembering sort of all mixed together and it ends up the poem ends somehow it gets to a French soldier, foreign legionnaire in Algeria during the war who's been captured, his hands have been cut off, and he's been painted like a prostitute and carried around from town to town by the, uh, um, the Algerians who, who want to be liberated, rightfully so, from the French. And it just getting there is just this mm. bizarre horrifying terrible thing he hecht do you know anthony hecht at all i don't know so hecht, hecht is uh it's important to know that he's jewish and he grew up in the he was born in the 20s and he served in world war ii and he was with the uh, american troops that liberated uh one of the concentration camps um so he would just the rest of his life he would just wake up screaming um, in the night. And he's, a, he's an extreme sort of classicist. He writes in verse, mm. uh, giant vocabulary. Um, and it just, when I was 20, 
I thought, well, that's just an old guy who writes old-fashioned poetry and wants to show everyone how smart he is. Um, and people would still probably consider him, people who don't know him, but would probably consider him an academic poet. But then when you read this stuff, it's just like he uses academic things you learn about in school, but then he, he makes them relevant to your to the poem and makes the poem relevant to living. So mm. um, I... I was an economics major at Notre Dame in the U.S. until I transferred to the University of Rochester, and I had to take an English class just to, I took two, just so I could be done with my um, requirement and move on and become an economist or a lawyer. Mm. And um, one of the classes was Intro to Shakespeare with Anthony Hecht, and he just, he read four p poems out loud for the entire, that's the whole semester was him just reading poems, uh, uh, plays out loud. And then talking about them, and I sat there and said, "Ooh, I'm going to do this. Yeah, right. I want to forget about this boring economic stuff. This is what I want to do." Oh, that's but it's funny because even as I sat there and I, I thought of him as like such a terrible poet, because 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 he wasn't he wasn't writing you know he wasn't writing earthy stuff. Mm, mm -hmm. And now it's just like, wow, he sure he's such a great writer. How could I have thought that? Mm. And I like, you That's know, interesting. Yeah. it's Ulysses. I get back to Ulysses. I, oh, Ulysses I used to love because of Stephen when I was a young man. And now that I'm a middle-aged man, I, I like, I see the Bloom is so much more a richer, wholer character and mm -hmm. such a better character. And Stephen was always the sort of self-important young man foil for Bloom's non-pretentious, uh, everyday earthiness, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's funny the way we read books, at least I read books differently, um, as we age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Jason Wesco, by the way, the, the poem I had read previous, he, he's, he's from Kansas. And Kansas. Kansas is home to some really good poets. Uh, There's a guy named Albert Goldbarth who teaches at uh, Wichita. He's not actually from, he's from New York, but he's been in Kansas a long time. Um, he's, he's a really, he's a great poet. He's an interesting poet that he, he mixes um, subject matter together really well. So there's a, a poem that I memorized. Well, there's nothing about Mary's classes. You had to memorize the poem, oh, which is right. brilliant. Yeah. Which is brilliant. Again, she said it as when she was explaining. She said, "As you memorize this poem, you will discover things about it that you would never get just reading it." Mm. Um, so true. So Goldbarth is one of these guys that mixes in things. He's got um, uh, a poem about a, a a woman with cancer who is sort of the the main idea of the poem, which comes in very late in the poem. Uh, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a painting of Rembrandt that's, that seems to be the initial uh, idea of the poem. Um, and he talks about, I can't remember all it, but he brings in other subjects that he likes to bring in sort of conspiracy theories and ancient cool. Egypt and yeah. he borrows a whole lot of stuff and builds these 
turning poems with him that I, that I really like. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> there's uh, this guy who's called B.H. Fairchild. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No, no. He is one of the poets that the Kansas people introduced me to. And, yeah. And he's, um, I saw him read in Syracuse. And he was so good, I bought two books. Okay. <laughs> this book is called Early Occult Memory Systems of the Lower, Lower Midwest. Midwest Poems, what yeah. a title. Yeah, his, the, his best poems are really long poems. Again, it's, it's, I like to read them. And I, you know, I, I read them out loud to my wife, but it's probably not the best thing for a podcast. Um, his father, he grew up in the 50s. I was a teenager in the 50s, and his father uh, ran a uh, metalworking, small metalworking shop in a place called Liberal, Kansas, which is in the southwest part of the state. Um, it's isolated, it's rural, it's, well, now it's really conservative. It, it, now it's religiously conservative. Then it would have just been sort of heartland conservative, maybe not quite as religious. Um, but definitely a, a, a world separate from any place I grew up or had most places I've been, which is sort of metropolitan. Um, but Kansas, the, the, the landscape of Kansas is, is really interesting and beautiful and lonely. Mm. Um, so, and it, I think that comes through in... I think that came to me. It comes through in Jason's poem, and it comes through in a, in a lot of Midwestern poetry. Is the the sense of place as uh, not soothing, um, as um, intimidating, as uh, a sort of void against which our lives are presented, um, and, and people who do that well, and people for me being familiar with. The, the type of place but people then who write that well it sort of sets up a really interesting um humanist problem right from this right from start it's almost uh it's almost religious in that there's this thing that i can see that it's vast and empty and i'm tiny and it's it has tornadoes it has this giant sky it has snowstorms it has dust it has heat uh, you know, Kansas. Kansas will be over 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer, and it'll be below zero Fahrenheit in the winter. Um, so it's a, these brutal extremes. Wow. Um, and the rain, the rain we've had here, that's Kansas spring every spring. Then you throw in the winds and the tornadoes, and it just. Gosh. It, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's its own character. So yeah, right. it. Yeah, and and, and uh, that's true of the that's the that's the plains area, uh, and and people who are from there and write from there uh, can capture that really well. Mm. Well, yeah, maybe maybe we can close out with one of these. Sure, I mean, um, I'm gonna do one from the Art of the Lathe. This is called Keats. I knew him. He ran the lathe next to mine. Perfectionist, a madman, even on overtime Saturday night. 
Hum of the crowd floating from the ballpark, shouts slamming doors from the bar down the street. He would lean into the lathe and make a little song with the honing cloth, rubbing the edges, smiling like a man asleep, dreaming. A short guy, but fearless. At Margie's, he would take no lip, put the mechanic big as a Buick through a stack of crates out back, and walked away with a broken thumb, but never said a word. Marge was a loud, dirty girl with booze breath and bad manners. He loved her. One night late, I saw them in the kitchen dancing something like a rumba to the radio, dish towels wrapped around their heads like swamis. Their laughter chimed rich as brass rivets rolling down a tin roof. But it was the work that kept them out of fights, and I remember the red hair flaming beneath the lamp, calipers measuring out the last cut, his hands flickering iron burrs like shooting stars through the shadows. It was the iron, cut to a perfect fit, smooth as bone china and gleaming under lamplight that made him stand back, take out a smoke, and sing. It was the dust that got him, his lungs collapsed from breathing in a life of work. Lying there, his hands are what I can't forget. That's a Beach Fairchild. That's amazing. I love that. Really he is uh, this great long poem about the word beauty. Because it wasn't a word um, allowed to be said by a male or referencing anything male when he was growing up. Yeah, um, that makes sense. It is, and he 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 he, he works his way through that as yeah. a, as a as a person um, and creates a absolutely beautiful poem out of it. This is especially good because he, he, the, the poem, the poet is Santee Frazier, and the, the book is called Dark 30, and I, I went to school with him at, at the Syracuse, um, and he's a, he's a Native American, so his, uh, and he's, but he's from, the, he's from that same Kansas, Oklahoma area, so there's, there's that feel to his poetry, but there's also the, the inescapably, uh, nativeness of of the of the life that he he's led which is um you know it's not it's its own thing um and, it, and he, he it's his telling of it is is rich and beautiful and sad um and tragic and hopeful um so this this is one that i've i've uh, i uh I've read it. I was going to read this one at, at, at your reading. I don't think I did, though, did I? I don't think so. No. I, this is called Mama's Work. Mama tucked the coffee can between her wrist and hip and walked down Dry Creek Road. Her eyes lined up, blush and lipstick, her Levi's short cut above the thigh. And what it was to see those farmers cutting down wheat, side-glancing Mama barefoot and brown, Sometimes it's flour, sometimes money when she empties the can. 
Her work in the quiet corners of barns on the hay on hot days when locusts launched themselves out of thickets. I stared down Dry Creek Road, looking for her wrist and hip, her splayed hair and small toes walking out of a pone-colored dust. <laughs>